I'd love it if you could uh, turn your Bibles to um, page 1066 and John chapter 4. I'll add my welcome to Johnny's. It's great to see you. My name's John T. And we're going to look at this next chapter in John's Gospel. So page 1066. And we're going to read verses 1 to 26. So John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I 
the one speaking to you, I am he. This is an extraordinary conversation. And what we're going to do this afternoon is we're going to delve deep into this conversation. We're going to try and dig really deep to understand the content of what is being said here. But before I get to the content, I want us first to notice the setting. What an extraordinary conversation it is because of who is having it. It's extraordinary because of what is said, but before we get to that, it's extraordinary because of who is talking to each other. We have already seen, again and again, in John's Gospel, that Jesus Christ, here is the big claim of John, Jesus Christ is the Word become flesh. He is the eternal God become human. And so you have this conversation happening between the man who is God and a Samaritan woman, and we don't even know her name. And it's in that context, right right there, that Jesus chooses to have this conversation and to reveal the truth about worship. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was about to make a big manifesto statement, if I was about to let the world know something that really mattered, I'd think carefully about how I did that. There may be people right now in this city stressing about how to make announcements about manifestos, how to announce their great policies to this country that we might vote for them. And my guess is there is not one room in this city where this conversation is happening. Tell you what, Boris, why don't you go and find some random woman who no one knows, sit down with her where no one else is around and tell her what you think. Bonkers, isn't it? That's not how we do it. We put things, if we've got an announcement to make, we make sure that it's with important people. We want to be known that we're with the celebrities. We want to make sure we're endorsed by the right people. And here is Jesus who meets this woman at this well because he has a message for her. Now we may say, why? Why does John do it like this? Why does John give us stories? Why doesn't he just tell us the facts? Come on, just tell us what we need to know about worship. Tell us the information. No, it's in a story because you need to know that when Jesus says whoever, he really means whoever. Remember last week, one of the most famous verses in the Bible God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever is a big word, right? Whoever. That's an expansive, inclusive, all-embracing word. It has no kind of boundary to it. There's no limits to that word. But what we do is we hear that word and we think, yes, but not them. And some of us sit here today, yes, but not me. And the story in John chapter 4 is to say, yes, you. There is no boundary, there's no edge to this word whoever where you sit just outside. You fall within the boundary lines of the word whoever. Because this woman shows you you. In chapter 3, Jesus met with a respected religious man called Nicodemus. 
And you'd expect him to say to Nicodemus, yes, Nicodemus, well done, love you, in you come. Instead, he said, Nicodemus, you don't get it at all. You don't understand and you need to be born again. You need to be completely changed from the inside out. That's what he said to the religious, respectable man. Now he meets a woman who is a Samaritan and she's an outcast and we'll see why in a bit. And rather than say to her, well, you're rubbish and you need to be outside, instead he says to her, I'll give you living water. Do you not see, here is the beauty of this man, Jesus. Here is the beauty of this one that we're talking about. There are no boundaries into who he will welcome, whoever believes. So let's have a look at the setting. Jesus is growing in popularity. He's down in Judea, that's in the south of Israel. But he's... His popularity is growing and things are getting a bit tense down in Judea and he's got other things he needs to do. And so he makes decision to return to Galilee up in the north where he does lots of his early ministry. Now to get from Judea to there, you have to go there, right? And here is Samaria. Now that might not trouble you particularly. That's like saying to get from here to here, you've got to go through Birmingham, Right? It's just like Samaria, it's just in the middle, that's just where you've got to go. But for the Jews, Samaria was a big problem. Because back in the Old Testament, God's people got split into two bits. The northern bit and the southern bit. The southern bit was where Jerusalem was, that was where the true Jews were. The northern bit in Samaria, they all got ripped off by the Assyrians into exile and then they were re Um, kind of filled the land with other people, with foreigners, and they intermarried with the Jews, and they weren't true. They weren't true Jews. And so everybody down here looked at them and said, well, you're not real Jews. And anyway, we've got Jerusalem, which is the true place of worship. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. Like, seriously hated them. And so when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get here, that's not actually, strictly speaking, true, because he could have walked around the outside like most of the Jews did. But when John says he had to go to Samaria, perhaps he has in mind he had to go to Samaria because there was a woman he had to meet in Samaria. And so here is Jesus who doesn't skirt round the outside of some people who he doesn't really like. He doesn't avoid people. He doesn't delete people or unfriend people in Facebook. He walks straight through the middle because he wants to meet whoever. And so he's walking through Samaria and he comes to this place, Sychar, he comes to a well and he's tired and he's thirsty and so he sits down. It's noon. Here again is the extraordinary truth. Here is a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. He's the eternal son of God who spoke creation into being, but now he's tired. Why? Because he's become a man. He's still God, but now in his humanity he experiences tiredness and hunger and thirst. And so here he is, sitting by a well. His disciples go off to buy food. I imagine Jesus sent them off. I imagine Jesus is orchestrating the whole thing. And then we're told in verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Now, we don't really see the socially awkward situation that that is. She's coming at noon, right? Noon is a rubbish time to draw water from a well. It's hot. It's the hottest part of the day. 
In our country, it doesn't matter, right? In our country, it's raining anyway. So we'll just go out at noon and we go, fine, I'll meet you at noon, that's all right. You don't do anything at noon in Israel because it's so hot, it's baking. You go early in the morning. So all of the people who'd go to the well would go early in the morning, they'd chat to each other, they'd have a happy social time, they'd help each other pull their buckets up, then they'd carry their water back to the town, everything would be done. And yet this woman comes at noon. She comes when she knows no one else will be there. She comes when she can come alone. Because this is not a woman who is welcome in her community. This is a woman who's an outcast. So she's a Samaritan. Jews are not supposed to talk to Samaritans. She's a woman. Men in that culture were not supposed to talk to women. And she's an outcast. Do you not, do you not see... And yet you watch how Jesus treats her. As I've studied this this week, I found it so moving to think of how Jesus honours her, loves her, treats her, respects her, and how John, uh, Jesus teaches her. He doesn't ignore her in a sort of awkward, oh, this is a bit awkward, I'll just look the other way and try to pretend nothing's happening like we do on the tube. Right, he's not a, he doesn't employ the kind of <gasps> reading my newspaper. He doesn't ignore her. He, he doesn't exploit her. Here's Jesus on his own, single bloke. Here comes a woman in the middle of the day, probably with a slightly dodgy sexual reputation. He doesn't exploit her. He doesn't use her. He doesn't abuse her. He's so, so pure. Instead, he says, would you give me a drink? Now, she's shocked at this. She's shocked he would even speak to her. But Jesus is speaking to her. And then in verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He starts to offer this woman living water. He starts to explain such Deep stuff to this woman sitting by well. I hope this encourages you. If you feel like you're someone who's excluded, if you feel like you're someone who's on the outskirts, if you feel like someone who's a bit of an outsider, I hope this encourages you that Jesus is really bothered about you. You're not outside his reach. You may say, but I've done terrible things. So she... You may say, I just feel dirty, I feel unclean, I feel ashamed, I feel like I don't want anyone, I don't, I don't even really want to be at church. Even being at church makes me feel awkward. Jesus loves you. He sees you, he knows you, and he wants to speak to you, not to reject you. And so Jesus speaks. So as we go through now the content of what we see, I want you to keep remembering the context of what this conversation happens in. Keep remembering. When you begin to think to yourself, oh, I'm not sure if this is really for me. Yes, it is. Whoever means whoever means whoever. But I now want us to look closely at the content. And what I want to do is I want us to see how this conversation moves. And in some ways, at first, it just seems quite random. But there are two key moves that happen in this conversation. There is a, 
starts with a conversation about thirst, and it finishes with a conversation about worship. Thirst and worship. Those two ideas dominate this conversation. And so what we're going to do now, as we listen in on this conversation, as we go back in time, as we place ourselves at the well in the hot and dusty land, we're going to ask, what does Jesus teach us about thirst and worship? And how do those two ideas tie together? That's, I want you to leave today with understanding how thirst and worship go together and make sense of the whole of your life. That will be it's a fairly big aim for this afternoon, but let's go for it. Firstly, let's talk about thirst. You'll have noticed there's quite a lot of talk of water. There's quite a lot of talk of, uh, of wells. And Jesus, in verse 13, says, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again. Let's talk about thirst. What is thirst? When did you last feel thirsty? Do you feel thirsty now? Probably do, actually, as we're talking about it. Some of you have got water. You're the organised ones. Well done. Some of us just struggle on. Here's what thirst is. Thirst is your body telling you that you're dying. When you're thirsty, you're dying. And your body is saying, I need water or I'll die. I realise that's quite a dramatic way to put it. But essentially that's what it is. Thirst is a powerful and an important and a desperately necessary workings of our body because our bodies need water to live. Water and life. Go, come on, you've all seen, you know, David Attenborough's got another of his uh, theories, hasn't he? I mean, the, if you're a young BBC nature presenter, life is rubbish, isn't it? I mean, when is this bloke going to stop? He's 94. And they still keep airdropping him into kind of like mountains with howling gales and he's kind of going to be blown off the mountain. You're like, let someone else have it. Anyway, there he is. David Attenborough started his new thing, Seven Worlds, One Planet. We watched the first one. It was terrific. Have you seen it? Anyone seen it? Oh my word, it was very traumatic and moving. There's this scene with an albatross, leaves his baby chick, leaves it on the nest, flies off baby chick has to stay on the nest. That's all it has to do. The winds howl around it. And this poor little laboratory is and it kind of wobbles and then eventually it gets blown off the nest and the, the parent comes back and it doesn't recognise the baby albatross because it's not on its nest. It doesn't recognise it by sight or by sound. It just needs to be on the nest. So you've got this daddy albatross going baby albatross going, I'm here. Trying to get back into the nest and eventually it's kind of like it's so, it gets in the nest and dad goes, oh, hello. <laughs> anyway, spoiler alert. <laughs> that was Antarctica. But I guarantee you, when we get to the one on the continent of Africa, there will be a scene where they'll be like, this is the dry season and everything's dead. And there'll be like skeletons and bones and dead animals. And then you'll see a lion kind of, and then, and then there'll be a tiny pitter-patter of rain and there'll be a moment, but hope is coming. And then suddenly there'll be this deluge of water and then this big torrent of river will flow past. And there'll be life and suddenly everything will be sped up and everything will go green. We get it, right? We get it. Life means, water means life. Without water, you die. 
All of that simply to make that point. (laughs) A point you understood perfectly well without any of that. And this woman is about to be taught something about water that she never knew. The best water she's got is the water that you dig up from this well. This is Jacob's well, you know. This is where our forefathers... This well gives the woman... It's not just water for the woman. This is about her identity. This is about her history. This is about who she is. This is about her people. This is Jacob's well. You know, you can still go to Jacob's well today. Difficult to get to it because there's a great big whopping church over it. But there's a well. It's still a well, 41 metres deep. You can drop your bucket down. And the woman, this, this for the woman is life. This sustains her life. And Jesus comes along and says, well, I'll give you living water. And the woman's confused. She looks at, the woman, at Jesus and goes, but you haven't got a bucket, Jesus. No bucket. And then she asked this question, are you greater than our father Jacob? What a great question. Jesus, are you saying that you're greater? Yes. That's pretty much it. Right the way through John's Gospel, we've seen that everything you've known before, Jesus is better. The cleansing in the Old Testament, Jesus is better. The temple in the Old Testament, Jesus is better. Everything, everything is being replaced and improved and brought to fruition in Jesus. Jesus, are you greater than this water? Yes, I am. Why, Jesus? Well, because I can give living water that anyone who drinks it will never thirst again. Wow. That's a big claim. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus is using language that is throughout the Old Testament of living water. Look at this from uh, Jeremiah. God looks at his people and he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How does God describe himself? Look at it. How does God describe himself? I am the spring of living water. That is who God is. He's the spring of living water. That means if you want to live, you drink from him. But God looks at his people and he says, but you have rejected me. You've not wanted to drink my water. You've dug your own cisterns. You've dug like muddy puddles in a field. And there's a bit of scabby water lying on the surface and you've got your face down in the filth and you're drinking that. And Jesus comes along and he says, I will give you living water. God says, I'm the spring of living water. Jesus says, I will give you water. You don't see who Jesus is claiming to be. Do you not see that Jesus is saying, the God that you've rejected, the one who made you, the one who's the source of all life, that's me, and I'm here to give you living water. For too long, you've been drinking of the wrong water. For too long, you've been trying to find something that will satisfy you. Our 
bodies are dying if we don't get physical water. Well, let me tell you this. Our souls are dying when we don't know God. And just as our physical bodies need physical water, so our souls, our bodies and souls, our whole being is dying away from God. And this language of thirst is powerful. Do you know what it's like to be thirsty? I don't just mean physically thirsty now. I don't just mean that moment when you plunge your face into ice-cold water after you've done something energetic. And you plunge off, it so tastes so good, right? Would you know what it's like to be thirsty for something deeper? Thirsty for something that will actually satisfy you? Thirsty for something that makes you go, that's who I am. That's what this is about. That's why I'm here. And we pursue all sorts of things that we think will satisfy us. We pursue all sorts of things that we think will fill that void in us. But if it's not God, then it's a muddy, filthy, stinking puddle that will not satisfy us. Let me help you to, um, to diagnose this a little bit. Here are some um, symptoms of being thirsty. Let me ask you, see if any of these help you. I'm trying to get you to kind of see this a little bit more. When you look at someone else and you envy them, that is an expression of a thirst. I'm looking at you and I want what you've got. I wish I had the life you had. I wish I had the job you had, the looks you have, the bank balance you have, the wife you have. I wish I had what you have. I wish I was gifted like you. You ever felt that? That's thirst. That's when you're thirsty. Or what about when you're disappointed? When your plans that you've made and the dreams that you have and they come tumbling down and you're disappointed. You find yourself sitting one day in a chair going, is that it? Is that really as good as it gets? Most of you are far too young to really have got to that stage yet. But you will. Happens about 38. (laughs) Disappointment. What about obsession? When you see an obsession within you. I just want that. I'm going to go for that. And I will get, I'll, I'll do anything to have that. And you'll be ruthlessly ambitious. And nothing will get in your way. And it doesn't matter what you have to sacrifice. It doesn't matter what you have to give up. I just want to make my first million. I just want to get my name known. I just want to do this or have this. That's first. But the problem is, when we allow that thirst to drive us to a muddy puddle, we are drinking death. You see the problem? And so what Jesus does in this encounter with this woman is he says you've got to take that thirst. The thirst is not bad, right? It's not bad to be thirsty. But what you've got to do is you've got to take that thirst and redirect it. Redirect your thirst 
to the living water that you were made for. So Sprite. Does, it, does Sprite still have the advertising slogan, Obey Your Thirst? No. <laughs> Many years ago, Sprite, uh, when they were advertising, um, their, their slogan was, Obey Your Thirst. And their adverts were all very dry and... You know, <sighs> and then you find a fridge full of ice-cold Sprites, and it's like, obey your thirst. Well, I want to say, almost Sprites, almost. But don't obey your thirst. Redirect your thirst to the one place where water can truly satisfy you. You see, what if the reason you're thirsty in your soul is because you were made for more? What if the reason you're thirsty and you find that nothing will satisfy you is because you weren't designed to be satisfied by this world? What if the reason that you're thirsty is because you were made for more? You have a bigger purpose, a better purpose. And his name is God and he made you and he loves you and he made you for himself that you might be satisfied in him. And Jesus comes and says, that's the water I give. And that's why he talks about it as life. The water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Why? Because when you drink, you live. When you drink, you live. And Jesus looks at this woman coming in the heat of the day and he says, come drink and live. There's a beautiful psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 63, where the psalmist expresses a similar thing. I mean, it's all over the place in the psalms, this language of thirst. In Psalm 63, it says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you have any sense of a thirst for God, a need of him. You see, the trouble is, too often we're taken in by the muddy puddles and we're splashing around in the muddy puddles saying, this is fine, this is happy, this is satisfying me. And you know what? For a short time it might. For a brief time, you may have an experience of joy in the puddle, but it will not last. And there'll come a point when the muddy puddle will let you down. And the muddy puddle will drain away and there'll be nothing left. And you'll be left in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And what you need is a spring that never runs out. And it's always true that the things this world offers to satisfy us will satisfy us for a short time. Otherwise, we wouldn't be taken in. So, of course... The offers of riches and sexual freedom and drugs and all the stuff that the world would say, this feels good. If you take drugs, it will feel good for a time, right? Otherwise, no one would do it. But it won't satisfy. I spent many years working with those who were battling alcohol addiction and to see this lived out in them. They will drink and they will experience a moment of freedom. Last, the pain is gone. But they have to wake up the next morning. And they have to drink again. And again. And I, let me just 
apply this really specifically. There may be some here for whom alcohol is a really big issue and you're beginning to slip down a road where you're beginning to drink more than you should. I beg of you today, do something about that. Talk to someone about it. Turn from that muddy puddle which will destroy you to the living water which will satisfy you forever. But for many of us, it's not alcohol. It may be work or... As in the case of this woman, it may well be in relationships. Jesus suddenly says to this woman, go call your husband and come back. You can almost imagine her kind of, her blood drain out of her. She says, well, how am I going to answer this one? But Jesus is not, not, not being unkind to her. He wants her to know that he knows her what Johnny was saying at the start. He knows her. Still he wants to give her water. I have no husband, she says. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. I don't think Jesus says that in a vindictive and harsh way. I think he says it in a way with eyes full of love. I think this is a woman who is a victim. I think this is a woman who's been deeply, deeply destroyed by pursuing and chasing after relationships, by being abused by men, and she's got nothing left. She's thirsty. And she needs to know that there is living water to be found in Jesus. But we need to now see the link now with worship. Okay, we, we, We're going to spend less time on this, so I have to go slightly quicker. I apologize. Um, because suddenly she asks, like verse 19, he says all this stuff about her, and she says, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. You seem to know stuff. Now, what do you make of verse 20? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim as a place of worship is in... Is this a classic case of misdirection? Let's not talk about the husbands. <laughs> uh, where should we worship, Jesus? It's always a good way to distract someone who's interested in theology. Ask them a difficult question. I don't think that's what's going on. I think when this woman says this, it is from a heart that says, I don't know how to worship. I want to worship. And you suddenly discover that her pursuing after these relationships and all the shame and the pain and the brokenness that she's experienced and all the sin that she's done, all of that mess comes from a heart that doesn't know how to worship. She says, you say we're supposed to worship over that mountain. We say it's supposed to be this. I don't even know where I'm supposed to worship and you seem to know what you're talking about. Can you help me? And Jesus said, oh boy, yes, I can help you. And when you redirect your thirst, when you say, this is a muddy puddle that stinks, when you redirect your thirst, what you redirect it to is worship. You see, worship is what thirst should lead you to. When you're thirsty, you learn to worship. And so Jesus speaks so boldly to her. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. 
I love the way he treats her. I love the way he sort of protects her and says, believe me, listen to me. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. A time is coming when you'll worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You're right, you're a Samaritan, you don't know about worship. Jesus is a Jew. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. But look at verse 23, all that's changing. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Now look, look, what does God seek? Some people sometimes say to me, oh, it's so egotistical of God, right? There's God in heaven, he just wants people to worship him. What a horrible God that would want, worship me. Do you see, it, it's not worship he seeks here. What is it he seeks? Worshippers. It's the people he seeks. He wants the people who are his, who love him and who drink from him and who worship him. It's people that he wants, not abstract worship. And the worshippers, the true worship that he seeks is worship that is in the spirit and truth. Well, what does that mean? How does that even help us? Well, it's contrasted with the worship in Jerusalem, the temple worship, the external form of worship that was going on in the temple. It was on the outside. Jesus says, I want to worship. The Father wants to worship that is from within. And it's all grounded in the nature of what God is like. So verse 24, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What do you make of the phrase God is spirit? This is a bit of uh, theology, it's a bit late in the sermon for this, but we'll come on, wake up, we're going to be all right. God is spirit, what, do you, what does that mean? Sometimes we might think it means God is like a spirit, like a ghost. It's one of the problems of calling the Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost. It's weird, right? We think of God as something like Casper the friendly ghost or something. It's weird. No, when we talk of God as spirit, what we mean is a whole bunch of stuff. But we mean that God is not some restricted little lifeless dead statue sitting in a temple ready to be worshipped. I'll stand here, wait for you to worship me. They're lifeless. They have no spirit. They're dead, dead, dead. And all they can do is bring death because they've got no water. They're dry. But how we, now we're being told, don't ever think that God is like that. God is spirit. That is, God is life itself. You know, spirit, the word spirit in the Old Testament is ruach, in the New Testament is pneuma, and both of them mean breath because it's about life. We're being told that God is the God who pulsates with life. When Adam, when he first made Adam, right, he made him out of clay, like femur. He made him and he kind of crafted him all and then he was there and he was dead. And you're like, well, that's no good, is it? And so what did God do? He breathed life, spirit, into the man. So the man became a living being. The God who is spirit is the God who breathes life and no dead idol can do that. 
Only the living God can breathe life into the dead. And so here is Jesus who says, well, God is spirit. That's what he's like. You can't put him in a temple. You can't contain him in a box. You can't squish him in and say, well, there's God in his little box. He's spirit. He's unlimited. He's massive. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing, all-seeing, life-giving. Doesn't that sound good? Isn't it good that that's what God is like? And therefore, he's the one who's able to breathe life into you. Therefore, he's the one who's able to give life. And all the muddy puddles that we turn to, all the stuff that we think will satisfy us, it's dead. When we put all our hope in our career and in our finances, we'll get to the end of our lives and we'll find they can do nothing to breathe life into us. There's no spirit there, there's only spirit here. And therefore you must worship God, not in a dead formulaic way that has no life but in the way of the spirit that is as God the spirit breathes life into our spirits or to put it in the language of John 3 as you are born again you need to be changed on the inside you need to worship God in the spirit you need to have his spirit living in you you need his spirit to breathe life into you that you might worship him with a passion and a desire and a love that comes from inside you Enough of the formulaic dead religion where people go into church and they sit there and they sing their songs and they go home and nothing changes. The God whose spirit would never do that. He's not satisfied for you to do that. And if your desire is to come to church and leave the same, you've come to the wrong church. There are plenty of places you can go. Go there and be unchanged. But if you want to be changed by the living spirit God, then this is the one. And as you come to worship him, you will discover that he enables your worship. You worship him in spirit and in truth. This is not some abstract, fluffy experience that has no grounding in reality. This is Jesus, the one who is truth, who says, do it this way. And then worship becomes this dynamite as spirit and truth combine to create hearts that are on fire with love for Jesus. And it won't surprise, I mean, it's, oh man, we've run out of time. the, The problem is, okay, we tend to kind of split ourselves into truth people and spirit people. Well, I'm a truth person. Which means you love knowing what's right and you love having your head full, but your heart is never really moved. You're never really excited about Jesus. You're never really passionate about it. You're like, well, I'm, but I'm right. I don't need to be excited. I just need to be right. <laughs> and then at the other end of the extreme, you get the people who are full of excitement and passion and do all sorts of bonkers stuff. That you go, what are you, why are you doing that? doesn't matter. I'm in the spirit and it's wonderful. No, there's got to be truth. And here is Jesus saying, here is true worship. True worship is when our thirst directs us to worship. With a heart that's changed by him, with a mind that's full of his truth, and there, there is the explosion when lives are really changed. I've got to tell you, that's what I long for. 
That is not my normal experience of the Christian life. But that is what I long for it to be. I long to thirst for him in such a way that it drives me to worship him in this sort of way. Psalm 63, which I was quoting earlier, goes on to say this. Look at this. His thirst. I'm thirsty, thirsty, thirsty. Here's where it drives him. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live and in your name I'll lift up my hands. I'll be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. That's worship. To behold his power and his glory. That's what John's gospel is about. Glimpsing his glory so that we might see him and worship him and fall before him and And there has been a trend in recent years to say that singing is not wor- that worship's not just singing. I agree with that, but I think we can swing too far to say, well, worship's just everything of life. Worship's just all of everything. And there's a truth in that, but worship is more than that. Worship is about us taking time and opportunity to behold His power and His glory, to enter His presence, to come before Him, and to fall and worship Him to give him the honour that he deserves. Yes, I can worship him in my workplace, but there is a moment when we gather together as a church family to sing that is this, it's about engaging our hearts and our minds and worshipping him. We need to finish. The woman is confused still. She goes, it's okay, because there's a man coming and he's going to explain it all to me. <laughs> and then Jesus says, that's me. I'm he. Therefore, the answer to all of your thirst, your envy, your disappointment, your obsession, your answer to all of that stuff is Jesus, who is God come to give us living water and to redirect our worship rightly. And if we flip through the pages of the New Testament, to the end of John's Gospel, we find Jesus hanging on a cross, dying, and do you know what he says as he dies? I'm thirsty. Why? Because he took all of my sin that should lead me to be thirsty so that I could drink. And this afternoon, that's what he offers you, and we're going to share bread and wine together, and Jesus is going to say to you right now, this afternoon, come drink. You may not be a Christian. Jesus says, come drink. Right now, come drink. You may say, oh, I'm quite dry as a Christian. That's n- Don't stay there. Ask him. Hunger for him. Thirst for him. You say, but I don't feel very thirsty. Well, then thirst for thirst. That's okay. It's okay to desire to be more thirsty than you are. That's the thirst. Don't beat yourself up about it. But let's celebrate him. We're going to pray, we're going to sing, we're going to share bread and wine together. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we have a spring of living water in Jesus. Thank you that he satisfies us more deeply than anything this world could ever offer. Lord, we're sorry for all the ways that we turn to muddy puddles. Lord, forgive us. And let us come to Jesus and drink, we pray. We ask it in his name. Amen.